Uh, have you had a good time on fall break? Those of you with kids, some of you have gotten out of town and you're back, and some people are obviously still out of town and uh, getting ready to come back this week. Hey, let me uh, remind you, you're going to hear about this at the end of the service, but next Sunday evening on the 20th at 4 o'clock is our family meeting. Some churches refer to it as a business meeting. We call it a family meeting. Uh, but Sunday morning, Sunday morning, we're going we're gonna to see some baptism Sunday morning. In fact, we're going to see that across the next several weeks, and I want to encourage you to be here. Uh, we're going to see a baptism in the early service. We're going to see one in the second, some in the second service, and we're going to have a lot of folks to affirm for membership uh, on the family meeting. Just a lot of really good things happening, so we're thankful to the Lord for all of that and want you to be kind of aware of that and be thinking about it and praying for it as you prepare yourselves, all right? I want you to open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 5 this morning. Acts 5, it's on page 913 if you're using the Bible in the, in the pew rack. And if we've not met, my name is Brian McCoy and I'm one of the pastors here. As a church, we are studying through the book of Acts. And uh, the book of Acts is the history of the early church, the first 30 years of the, of the church. That's what you see here. And in these chapters, 4, 5, 6, and 7, the early Christians are really starting to face some opposition. Life is getting very uncomfortable for them in a lot of different ways. From this point in history until about 310 AD, there were 10 systematic persecutions of Christians in the Roman Empire. Christians, uh, you know, they, they were imprisoned. It became illegal for about 100 years to even be a Christian. Their homes and their lands were repossessed, as it were. They were taken from them. Uh, they were tortured. Some of them were killed. Uh, we're going to get a chapter, uh, the next chapter. We're going to see the first martyr for Christ. As you press into the book of Acts, you'll see James die for his faith, and later you'll see Paul die for his faith. Uh, it's serious what we see. And in this passage this morning in particular, chapter 5, verse 12, all the way to the end, verse 42, there are two big ideas really that are going on in this, in this passage. The first is this, that God means to unleash the gospel into the world through his people, the church, and there isn't anything anyone can do to stop that. God's mission is going to be accomplished. At the same time, God means to do that through you and me. And so there are going to come a time, there's going to come a time, there will be moments when as believers and as witnesses, as Acts 1-8 kinds of people, we're going to have to demonstrate courage in the accomplishment of that mission. We're going to be called on to demonstrate courage to do that. Where did these people get the courage to continue in that mission? I want us to see that this morning in this text. We're going to see it, I think, particularly in verses 29 to 32. We'll, we'll drill into that pretty, pretty steadily. But I want to break the whole passage down with three questions. What was that courage? What was it? Uh, where did they get it? And how do we get that courage? All right, so let's begin at the beginning, chapter 5, verse 12, and get the context. You're going to see miracles and multitudes here. Many signs and wonders being done through the apostles and many multitudes of people coming to faith in Jesus. Look at it. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. That's a, if you looked it up on Google, you could find an image of that. It's within the temple complex, and it's just a long, uh, it's a portico, right? I mean, it's a long place that's covered, and many, many people could gather there. 
None of the rest, he's talking about the people in general, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It would be a great uh, teaching time, a great message to talk a lot about these signs and wonders, all of these miracles. What were they about? Why did they occur? Uh, what purpose do they have in the life of the early church? Do they have any purpose in our lives? But the main point that Luke is trying to press home by showing us that, as well as multitudes coming to faith, is that God has put his stamp of approval, if you will, on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's all about Jesus. All of these people are healed because of Jesus, just as we saw in chapter 3. Multitudes are coming into the church. Why? Because of Jesus. It's all centered on him. And the church is really facing some opposition at this point. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up. It's very much like the transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5. You have Barnabas, who's a generous giver, but there was a man named Ananias. And here you have multitudes coming to faith and miracles happening, but the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The Sadducees, we've talked a little bit about them. They were a, a, a ruling party, a kind of a political party within the nation. Uh, they did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, which is ironic, as you see here in a moment in the passage. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in those kinds of things, and that's why they were Sad you see. I'm here all week. I just couldn't resist. I was like, week after week, I'm saying this, and I got to get it out. Sorry. <laughs> the apostles in the church have got this amazing reputation with the people, right? The people hold them in high esteem, but the religious leaders, not so much. There's a jealousy that fuels a hatred that they have for these early Christians. And so they throw not just Peter and John in jail like they've done in the past. They round up all of the apostles and put them all in jail. And not just in their jail, they put them in a public prison. The conditions are much worse for them now. But God intervenes in a miraculous way. Look at it in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, their heads dropped, they complained, they moaned, they whined, they kicked the dirt, and they said, do we have to go back there again? No, what did it say? They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So in the middle of the night, God intervenes, he sends an angel, because God means to get the gospel out and there isn't anything anyone can do about it, to stop it. So the angel allows them to go out, and God does what through the angel? He says, go right back to the so-called scene of the crime and do what you were doing when they arrested you in the first place. Imagine the pressure to just go home and be quiet. To just go home and say, I don't, I don't want to have to endure this again. One night, and it wasn't even a night, but that, those hours in that jail were more than enough for me. Surely we can do this some other way. But they didn't do that. At daybreak, first thing in the morning, they went right back, and they went right back at it. It's a great example of courage in the face of opposition. 
But then there's this embarrassing scene that happens. Look on. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him and they called together the council and all the sin of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. Wouldn't you love to be the one giving this report? They returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them. Not just perplexed, they were greatly perplexed. The guys we put in jail are not there. What do you mean? And look at what it says. And they wanted to know, what would, come, what would this come to? Here's what it came to. Someone came in and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain and officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Once again, see the contrast there. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them. And so there's this embarrassing scene, and here they all are, standing once again before this council. All of them together, standing where Peter and John had stood in chapter 4. All of them together now, standing where Jesus stood the night he was betrayed. Remember that image that I gave you a few weeks ago of the Sanhedrin. They were standing in the middle. They were surrounded with the high priest, dead center, and the rest of that group on either side of them. And now they were being called to account for what they were doing. And the Sadducees were itching to deal with these apostles and this church for the last time. And so what happens? The high priest questions them in verse 28. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet, and you could circle this, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's courage. Some people would call that civil disobedience. When the state forbids what God requires, you must obey God rather than men. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., right? He's a stellar example of civil disobedience. We saw that at work. We saw other examples through the history of our nation of civil disobedience. When the state says no to something God says you must, then you have to obey God rather than men. And that's what these men are doing. It takes courage, though. They're surrounded. This is not a friendly environment. They've got courage. What was this courage? Courage is acting with principle in the face of opposition and danger. That's courage. Acting with principle in the face of opposition and danger. And what makes you courageous is that you don't care what the opposition will say about you or do to you. A person with great courage does what's right because of the principle. You do what's right. You say what's true. You don't have to consult anyone else. You consult your conscience. You're not pushed around by the bullies who want to cause you to run within the rails. No, you do the right thing. You say the right thing. In the face of danger, you stand your ground rather than retreat. That's the kind of courage these men have. When you face danger and opposition, you choose to risk. You choose to sacrifice, even for the sake of others and for the sake of the principle for which you're standing. Look at what the apostles say to these men. As they're surrounded by them, Peter speaks up. He says, we're going to obey God rather than men, the God of our fathers. In case you're wondering which God I'm talking about, we're talking about the God of our fathers. He raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader. Some of your Bibles will say prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit to whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Why did these men suddenly become so furious now at the apostles? They were irate, they were annoyed, they were ticked. And now they're furious and they're thinking about how they can kill these men. Is it guilt? I think it's likely guilt. Because these are the same men, remember, who stood on the pavement and begged Pilate to crucify Jesus for them. They said, let his blood be upon us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. Jesus is not our king. I think it's guilt. Peter is saying, you are guilty, absolutely. And we cannot obey you. We must obey God. And then he begins to preach the gospel to them. It's, it's courageous what he's, what he's doing. He said, you tried to bring Jesus down. You crucified him, you buried him, but God raised him up from the dead and has now exalted him to his right hand. He is the leader, he's the prince, he's the savior. It's only through Jesus that you can have forgiveness of sins. He substituted himself for us. And so you've rebelled, and in your rebellion, God in his kindness has sent a savior for you. And yet that savior is also the prince. He's the conqueror. He's the champion. And you must entrust your whole life to him. You must submit your whole life to him. So he's challenging these men. And that's what the gospel does. And, and we know that, right? Many years ago, there was a gal named Becky Pippert. She, she wrote a book and she described how uncomfortable evangelism is, both for a non-Christian and for a Christian. They said, man, sometimes it can be so uncomfortable for us to share the good news because we know it puts people on the spot. And in our culture today, we, we, we run from those kinds of things. We don't want to put anybody on the spot. We want to say this is the truth, and you must believe it. And it's good news. And so we kind of drift away from those kinds of things, and that's what was happening here. Peter was saying to these men, you are guilty. You're the religious leaders, yes, but there's a huge deficiency in your faith. It's inadequate. And you need to turn your lives over to God, the God of our fathers, who has sent his son into the world. And they didn't want to do that. It was far too big of a step for them. And they're furious because they've been challenged. But the apostles are speaking courageously. They're under a threat of death now, it seems. And think about this. They're, they're not trying to be intentionally belligerent, right? And as we go out, as we try to share our faith and we invite people, to share, there's no need to be intentionally belligerent about it. We're not trying to be condescending to people. We're not trying to act in pride. In fact, I think that they're being very caring right now. Think about it. When you know that the only hope someone has of salvation is to hear the good news of Jesus and believe it, it ought to move our hearts with compassion toward every person who has yet to hear and activate us to do something about it so that they can hear and trust in Christ. You ought to be able and willing to risk suffering and trouble in order to share that message so that someone else can live forever. Most people, I think, really need a simple, straightforward explanation of the gospel because most people don't really know what the gospel is. Most of the people you and I talk to think that there's some way in which they can contribute in order to be saved, that they think they can be good enough somehow or the other 
in order for God to accept them. There's some work they need to do. And so the gospel of grace is good news, but it challenges us to our human core because it requires us to admit that we are sinners to the utmost and we can do nothing to save ourselves. It's so difficult. Now, most of us are not going to stand in the place that these men stood. We're not going to probably have the threat of death hanging over our heads in the midst of this. And yet, we need courage. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever read a newspaper column called Ask Amy. It's not in the Republic. It's in a lot of other newspapers. But uh, once a woman wrote in and she asked this question of Amy. Dear Amy, what do you think of someone asking a semi-stranger, what church do you attend? Or worse, do you go to church? It seems intrusive, as intrusive as asking how much do you weigh? Or how much money do you make? Or are your children gay or straight? Maybe churches today are trying to grow their memberships, but the way I was raised, someone's relationship with God is personal. I know people like to categorize, but to me the question is just rude. Am I out of step? That's probably truer to form what you and I face on a regular basis, kind of the attitude that's, that lies just below the surface of even a simple invitation to come along to a worship service or to an event like Snowy Night. We need courage to stay at it in the midst of that kind of opposition, in the midst of that sort of antagonism, in the midst of facing that kind of thing. So that when you share the good news or when you offer an invitation, some people are going to be blessed by it, just like we see here. Some people are going to receive the good news. And some of us have been fortunate enough, blessed enough by God to be in the presence of someone who turns their life over to Jesus. But then others will have a completely different response altogether. And there will be some of those moments when you and I are required to act with courage and persist and not give up. Courage is acting with principle in the face of danger and in the face of opposition. Where did they get this courage? Look at what they said there in verses 29 to 31. Once again, Peter is preaching to them and he's talking to them about who Jesus is. And he calls Jesus Savior, and that name is given to Jesus over and over in the New Testament. But he also uses this other word. In, in, in the English Standard Version, it says Jesus is the leader and the Savior. Some of your Bibles may say Prince and Savior. It's the word archigos. Archigos. It's a Greek word that I can't pronounce. And uh, you find it in Acts 3.15. In Acts 3.15, Peter is preaching, and he, and he tells the group of people who are gathered there, all of the Jews, he says, you killed the prince of life. It's the same word. We see this word used here. Jesus is the prince and the savior, exalted to the right hand of the father, risen from the dead. You also see it in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus is referred to as the captain of our salvation. Jesus is the one who could do what no one else could do. Jesus is the champion. He's the one who conquered sin and death and the devil. Jesus demonstrated ultimate courage, didn't he, by going to the cross. These same bullies who were trying to push around the apostles in the early church, tried to push Jesus around, but he wouldn't move from his mark. Even under the threat of scourging and death, he would not retreat in the face of it. What did he say? He said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. He also said in John 10, no man takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. That's courageousness. 
Jesus faced opposition and danger. But Jesus' courage was even more radical than that. Now, don't, don't drift for a moment here, all right? Do you know Peter Parker? You remember that name, right? He, he's a hero, or he's supposed to be a hero, right? But he's just a kid from Queens that gets bit by a radioactive spider, and now he's got superpowers, but he wasn't a superhero until he got superpowers. Jesus, on the other hand, has always had all power. He is the maker of heaven and earth. We've sung about Jesus this morning to his glory. He commands the winds and the waves. He heals the lame and the blind and the deaf. He raises the dead. This is Jesus. He is the ultimate hero. Why? Because he laid his power aside. He didn't flaunt it. He laid it down. Jesus is radically different because he gave up his power. He gave up his glory. I love how Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, he made of himself no reputation, but he took on himself human flesh. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Do you ever have that sense of, I have a reputation and you should know me, or I should be known in your office, maybe in your neighborhood or with your friends, and you think people aren't maybe treating you just so, and, and you're worthy of a little bit more. If there was anyone walking the planet in those days who was worthy of all honor and glory, it was Jesus. But Jesus didn't hold on to it like this. He gave it up. That's power. That's courage. Jesus laid aside his power. He substituted himself for us. He died for us in our place, for our sins on the cross. Certainly the Holy Spirit within these apostles gave them boldness and courage. We've seen that in the last few weeks as they did that. They knew their prince and their savior and they looked to him to give them courage. They knew they were standing in the same place he stood weeks before. And they must have remembered Jesus saying, no servant is above his master. But if they hated me, they will hate you also. So they got their courage to stand. They got their courage to share the gospel, to persist, to continue, to go back out when they'd been released from jail. They got their courage to face all of that when they saw their savior, their prince. How do we get this courage for ourselves to be the Acts 1-8 people God has called us to be. Once again, God intervenes in this moment. In verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged. They wanted to kill them. Here's that transition, verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So God does this very unusual thing, right? First, he acts in a supernatural way, sends an angel, delivers them from prison. And now he's acting in this very kind of providential way, seemingly behind the scenes. And he gets a Pharisee who's sitting on the council to stand up and say, just a minute, guys, can we have an executive session? They send the apostles out. And Gamaliel, what does he do? He reminds them of some history. He tells them about two men. He names them here. And he says, these two guys gathered some followers. And at different times, they started some movements and as they went about their business, uh, there was trouble and they stirred it up. But eventually, those two leaders died and their, their followers scattered. And then he says this to them. Guys, if God is not in this, give it time. It will eventually dissipate. 
it will come to nothing. Don't get involved in this. Leave it alone for now. And then he says, however, if God is in this, be careful not to meddle and be found fighting against what God himself is doing. Because that's a losing position. Well, he tells them this, and that kind of cools their murderous anger, but they're still out for blood. They are really mad at these men. And so they bring the apostles back in. Look at, look at what happens here. You have to turn the page, perhaps. In verse 40, they took his advice at the end of verse 39. And when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And we could read right past that and say they called them back in and they beat them and they let them go. But it was a flogging. They beat them to within an inch of their life. It was a horrible beating. But what happens after that? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple right back where it started. And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They're beat within an inch of their life and they go on without ceasing, teaching and preaching the name that they have been forbidden to utter any longer. And they go out with this strange kind of joy, rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of that name. I think they must have been thinking about what Jesus said. I I wrote it down for myself this morning so I wouldn't forget it, but in the Beatitudes, right, Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's how they went out. It's an amazing thing to me. And I I can't really claim to begin to understand it. I've faced opposition. I've had people be very antagonistic to me. I've had people act very apathetically toward the gospel. And it's been discouraging. It's been disheartening. And I won't lie to you. There have been days and times when I've just tucked my tail and went for the hills. You know, I I just hid. I just tucked it away for a while because it was painful. These guys have taken a physical beating. They've received a verbal tongue lashing. And what do they do? They do not cease to go back out and share the name of Jesus. They're not looking for trouble. That's not the attitude of their hearts, their posture. They didn't go looking for a beating. They are just obediently, faithfully, and courageously sharing the gospel, all the words of this life. I love how it says that. These men had this otherworldly courage. Where did they get it? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse two is the last place where you find that word archegos used in relationship to Jesus. Look at what it says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now we know it as fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The Greek word is archegos. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the archegos and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. 
If you're ever faced with opposition, sometimes you may try to drum up courage and just be defiant, right? Okay, I know this is hard, but I can beat this. I can, I can achieve this, right? I can win over this, and, and nothing bad's going to happen to me in the process. This is going to be it, and I know I can overcome that. And yet, something really, truly bad could happen to you. Defiance is not the same as courage, because defiance requires that you look at yourself and ignore reality. Because something terrible could happen in the face of defiance. And Jesus did not go to the cross defiantly. In Gethsemane, he did not say, give me that cup. I can't wait to drink that. I'm going to beat this. Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. The garden was a dark place, a dark moment. He was not defiant He did not look to himself to drive out fear facing the cross. Where did Jesus look that enabled him to find the courage to go to the cross despite the fear? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the archegos and finisher of our faith. Here's his example for us. Who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. In heaven, when the question came, should you go? And lay aside your glory and put on human flesh and be vulnerable and face infinite pain and death. Jesus, should you do that? The answer was yes. Why? For the joy that was set before him. Now think about this. What joy could Jesus possibly get that he didn't already have in heaven? What joy could Jesus only receive on the other side of suffering that he could not have if he stayed in heaven? He is not delusional and he is not being defiant when he goes to the cross. He sees the reality of the cross and the pain and the suffering and the separation that will come between he and the Father. But he saw something that gave him courage. The joy, the joy of saving a people for himself to the glory of his Father in heaven. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the archegos, the prince, the captain of salvation the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. How are we supposed to be courageous in the face of opposition and trouble when we share our faith, when we issue an invitation? Let me give you one more illustration, all right? I love the Lord of the Rings. Do you like the Lord of the Rings? Have you watched the movie? I've seen it more times than I can tell you about. But I read the book years and years ago. And in the book, there's this little hobbit. There's a scene in the movie as well. His name is Mary. And Mary is in a place he shouldn't be. No little hobbit should be in the middle of a battlefield. Fighting and death is happening all around him. And this is what Tolkien writes in the book. He says, such a horror was on him that he was blind and sick. But then he sees his friend, a woman named Eowyn, and she's dressed in battle gear. And what is she doing? She's doing battle with the witch king. She doesn't have a prayer against the witch king. But Mary looks at her and something changes in his heart. He sees her fighting bravely for her friends, and for him. And listen to what Tolkien writes. Pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly the slow kindled courage of his race awoke and he clenched his fists. And that's it. He didn't look at himself and say, I can beat the witch king. Out of the way, Eowyn. 
I can do this. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. No, he didn't look at himself. He looked at the bravery of another. He looked at the bravery of someone who was substituting themselves for him. And that slow, kindled courage awoke within him, and he clenched his fist. How do we get the courage we need to fight opposition and to remain persistent in our witness? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the archegos, the prince, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what the apostles did. In verse 32, what did they say? We are witnesses. We've seen it. We are witnesses of this. And they said, and the Holy Spirit is the witness in chief, if you will. He's the witness through us that this is true. And they go out with joy, this strange joy, after getting a beating. It must have been a sight. There was joy in their hearts, but their bodies have been broken. And they go out hobbled and limping and aching and helping one another, I'm sure, bandaged. But they go out with joy every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ beloved God means to unleash the gospel through you and me into your family into your workplace among your neighbors on the team in your classroom on your Uber ride or your Lyft ride in some of the most unusual circumstances you may find yourself in he means to unleash the gospel through you and me. He certainly means to unleash the gospel through us as a church family. What will it take for it to be said of us, you have filled Awatuki with your teaching? Weeks ago, we showed you an image of a map. A couple of weeks ago, we gave you a little card with the map on it. Now we've hung the map on the wall. And if you haven't gone down the hallway over here, I want you to go down the hallway and look at it. I want you to see the map of Awatuki. And I want you to think of this and be reminded of this, that 32 years ago, more than that really, a prayerful group of people looked into a community that didn't yet exist. And they imagined what developers imagined, but in a little different way. Developers saw dollar signs. But this group of prayerful people who believed what Jesus said in Acts 1-8, they saw people who would need Jesus. They saw a whole community rising up out of the ground that would be filled with moms and dads and kids and teenagers and middle schools and high schools and elementary schools and parks. They saw people, people who didn't even live there yet, but people who would need Jesus. And that hasn't changed in 32 years. 81,000 people live in this community. Roughly 75,000 of them will not be in a building like this doing anything like this this morning. The need still exists. What will it take for it to be said of us, you have filled Awatuki with this teaching? It will take us fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Archegos, the author and finisher of our faith, to walk with Jesus, the spirit-empowered witnesses who have confidence in Jesus so that when we issue an invitation to come to something like a snowy night or when our group's having a hospitality night to offer an invitation to that or to open a conversation with boldness, on your lift ride. And as you begin to have small talk, you say, hey, I'm just curious, have you ever heard the gospel? You think, oh, that's too bold, that's too brash. That's a great way to start the conversation because most people have never heard it. They're not even sure what that word means. But of course, if you ask, you're gonna be ready to share. 
what would, it, what would it take for it to be said that we filled Awatuki with the gospel? It's an everyday response, courageous response, joyful response to this calling that we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. When people give us an apathetic kind of response to the gospel and they say, you know, that's good for you, but I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. Or when people are antagonistic and, and they want to kind of argue with you and they kind of think, don't quit, don't give up, don't throw in the towel, persist. I believe what we're going to find later in Acts, Paul said that he went into this, into this city because the Lord had many people there. The Lord has many people here. We don't know who they are. You never know when you're going to run into one. So sow the seed and be liberal with it. Don't miss your Sanhedrin moment. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at him and let the wonder of his rule and his glory fill your heart. So much so that you clench your fist and you go out and you engage people to put Jesus first for the sake of others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the bold example of these apostles. And it's hard for me to put myself in their shoes in many ways because I've never faced this kind of opposition, nothing to this degree. And yet we know, Father, that there are brothers and sisters around the world who face it, who live under tyranny of all kinds. We pray for them this morning. Father, we pray this morning for believers in Malaysia who have spent this week sharing the gospel there. It's a very difficult place. The government has set all the rules and written all the laws so that it makes it very difficult for a person to come to faith in Christ and to live that out. And yet there are brothers and sisters who are there sharing that. We pray that they would have courage, that today they would look to you, Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, the prince, the captain of salvation, and that they would go with great courage. Even this evening, tonight, as they're out, perhaps for the very last night this week as they kind of push through the city, that you would grant them favor and give them courage as they share the gospel. Father, we know that there are many others across the world, but we pray for our brothers and sisters there in Malaysia, particularly this morning. And then we say to you that we're looking to you this morning as the captain of salvation, our prince and our savior, and we are asking you to give us that kind of boldness and courage to share our faith and to stand for our faith with old friends and family members and with new friends and people that we meet along the way. And that when we are met with antagonism, Lord Jesus, or with apathy, remind us to look to you, to fix our eyes on you, and to be willing to suffer whatever indignity or whatever dishonor we may think we're suffering, whatever difficulty we may encounter. Help us to put our eyes on you and give us the courage to sweep away any excuses we might make to give up and quit and to never try that again. And instead, to get out of ourselves and to give us hearts of compassion that are willing to risk and sacrifice so that all may hear until we have filled this community with the gospel for the sake of your name. We pray it, Jesus. Amen.